My name is Justin DeClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a big figure in a young Will Sloan's life. It is the documentary filmmaker Nick Broomfield. Uh, I'll give people a very short explanation of who Nick Broomfield is. Perhaps you've seen him. He's a mild-mannered, slightly bumbling British documentary filmmaker, generally tackles sordid subject matter, and he stumbles his way into awkward and potentially even dangerous situations, and through his deliberately awkward screen persona, manages to catch people off guard and gets them to say things they probably shouldn't be saying. So I had heard about this filmmaker before, but I had never seen any of his films. And the context that people would talk about him in was always like, ugh, this guy. Because, you know, he makes a lot of movies, and he also, as Will said, makes very sordid ones, or tabloid-esque, if you will. And the fact that he prefers to put himself on camera, that oftentimes his documentaries, okay, let's be honest, all the time, his documentaries become about making the documentary, can grate on viewers. Yeah, he is a Michael Moore type, at least in the, the, the fact that he's always in his movies. He more or less set the template for Louis Theroux, who basically took Nick Broomfield's shtick wholesale and does it slicker. But more handsome. Uh, you know, I gotta say, uh, Nick Broomfield, not bad looking for a documentary <laughs> filmmaker. Yeah, and when you see him decked out in his, uh, I guess, copyrighted gear, you've got the big recorder, you've got the boom pole. He just looks like a big nerd going around making documentaries. And yes, as you mentioned, his subject matter, very tabloid-esque. I mean, he's made films about a wide range of subjects, but the ones that people know best include two documentaries about the serial killer Eileen Wuornos, a film about Heidi Fleiss, a film about Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, a film about Biggie and Tupac, a lot of other films that deal with sex work in some way or So another. when you were a young cinephile, what attracted you to him as a cinematic figure? I know the answer. I just want you to say it. Okay, well, actually, there, there are a lot of things. And when you say you know the answer, it probably has something to do with the fact that his subject matter is like really dirty and really, really gross, right? Oh, I was going to say that you responded to a figure on screen that is going through these stories that is a little bit nerdy. So you can kind of see yourself in him. The idea that you could go and find these stories and kind of fight for them as well. Well, definitely when I was at the peak of my interest in Nick Broomfield, I was also very fascinated with people like well, journalists like Tom Wolfe or Hunter S. Thompson, the way that they would do this whole business of interrogating the idea of journalistic objectivity and making themselves part of the story. I remember in high school, I saw Kurt and Courtney, and there's a scene in that movie where Broomfield shows us himself on the phone with one of his financiers who's pulling the plug on the financing. And that kind of blew my mind that that was in the movie. My issue is this, and because I watched so many of Nick Broomfield's movies this week, is that it oftentimes feels like you didn't write your homework, so you're going to write an essay about how you didn't have time to write your homework. I am extremely sympathetic to that criticism. I think I became a bit disenchanted with him when I saw his movie Sarah Palin, You Betcha. Oh, boy. <laughs> which is probably well one of his worst movies, at least. And that's a movie where, you know, he he goes out to expose Sarah Palin, I guess, and it's kind of a Roger and me type thing where he can never he can never get an interview with her. And I feel like 
one or two times too many, he's made a movie about how, oh, uh, I, I couldn't make the movie. I couldn't yes. get the interview. One or two or three or four or five. I mean, a lot of his films are structured the same way, which is he wants to make a movie about a particular person. He cannot get access to that person. So he circles around that figure's social connections and you get more of an image of what is going on that led to this person's predicament. And then you get an interview with that person in the final moments of the picture. He seems to start off not quite knowing what the film is going to be, not Mm -hmm. quite knowing what he's going to get. And then the finished result can vary widely depending on who he talks to. Uh, Sometimes he encounters incredible characters. I think when Broomfield is at his best, his movies feel like you're going down a rabbit hole with him. You're going on this long, shaggy dog, almost like an inherent vice journey with him as mm-hmm. he really explores a milieu. Like at his best, and even actually sometimes when he's not at his best, like Curtin Courtney, which is a movie I don't like very much, it really does give you a sense of this place where Kurt Cobain emerged from in a way that a slicker documentary about Kurt Cobain would. I mean, that lack of slickness, even in his early films when he wasn't much of a presence, I think that's like that connective tissue to an audience that the PBS documentaries don't have, that they're presenting these images almost as if, oh, this is how it happened. And it's almost pristine and plastic in its, you know, containment. While you have something like Chicken Ranch, one of his early films, which is Broomfield documenting the uh, best little whorehouse in Texas, a legal brothel near Las Vegas, that that style is present, but he is not, which allows the people in the film to move closer to the front, even though that the presence of the filmmaker is an issue. Yeah, his career can be roughly divided into two sections. In his early career, he was very much an observational cinema verite filmmaker in the mold of somebody like Frederick Wiseman. Chicken Ranch is one of the best from this early period. We both watched it this week, and it's quite something. He spends some time at, as you said, this legal brothel in Nevada. And I was most surprised about this movie, about how it's not very sensationalist. It's not leering like a lot of his later movies are. It's more or less divided up between scenes of the girls negotiating with the potential Johns. And the Johns are all a pretty pitiful lot. And the other strand of the movie is just the girls with each other as they, you know, shoot the shit or or trade stories or just try to build each other up in what is a rather corrosive profession. It has the feeling of a fictional film because you're just hanging out with these women, learning about their personalities. And I'm not sure how he got these scenes. They feel very unstaged and off the cuff, which, let's be honest, that's not the case when you're shooting on film. Film costs a lot of money. So a lot of the stuff is staged, which you get a little bit later in his documentaries where it's addressed but it just feels immediate and them as people that are going through this profession are all given enough time to show who they are why they're making the choices they are in their life and where they're hoping to be headed but it climaxes with this moment when i guess the illusion of the place ruptures the pimp basically the guy who owns this place kind of reveals his true colors Um, and that's where broomfield actually does very briefly appear in the movie Um, You know, a question that's at the heart of pretty much any discussion about documentary filmmaking is how to represent reality. You know, when you introduce a camera, it's not reality anymore. Somebody like Frederick Wiseman, 
He tries to be as unobtrusive as possible. He embeds himself in these environments. He's filming constantly, and he's waiting for people to let their guards down and forget that he's there. Somebody like Michael Moore, there's no pretense of objectivity. He makes cinematic op-eds, or he makes performance art. And then there's Nick Broomfield, where um, I guess his idea is somewhere between those two extremes, where it's like, you know, leave the camera running, show me, show the means of production, show me coming out of the car and going up in the elevator and knocking on the office door so that like i'm fully transparent even though he's like obviously not fully transparent that's the thing right is that where the tension comes is when you realize that this transparency you're seeing is staged for the camera to give it the presence of transparency now that changes i feel later on once digital technology becomes the norm because at that point you can just keep filming but then when you have a documentary like driving me crazy from 1988 that's a really interesting one because it's all about the artificiality that he's trying to create for the documentary. This film is about a musical that's being put together called Body and Soul that's supposed to highlight the history of black music and art. Of course, it's being directed and produced by white guys <laughs> who are the worst. And Nick Broomfield is just supposed to document the stuff. But what the documentary is really about is how intrusive a presence he is and how all of the egos of the people in charge are pulling him in a million different hilariously egotistical directions. This was the first movie where he became an on-screen character. It was a real turning point in his filmography. He seems to have done this partly out of desperation because he didn't really have you know, he, he didn't have a lot of usable footage to make anything else. So there are just a lot of scenes of him negotiating with his, as you said, mostly white financiers and the mostly white creative team behind this musical about what this documentary is even supposed to be. At one point, they're suggesting to him, oh, we need to get a screenwriter in here and, and we'll have we'll have an actor who plays a character and it. There's kind of like a metafictional device. And the screenwriter can star in the movie. And then you see Nick Broomfield like trying to shoot something with him. And it's so complicated because the screenwriter is so angry and won't take direction. And at the same time, you have these rehearsals that he's shooting. And the person in charge of the rehearsals is like, he's shooting these rehearsals as if the people have the job and he's giving them hope and he's getting in the way just staging it for the camera, but this is people's jobs and he's not paying them for this stuff. I, I have to give Nick Broomfield some credit for including scenes of people working on the musical, like yelling at him and chewing him out for being unprofessional for like the fact that the lighting rigs hurt somebody at some point and that he's like literally bumping into people while they're trying to dance. Uh, I also love that Broomfield includes some clips of himself, like really heavily flirting with the oh, director's God. assistant. <laughs> It's so gross. Just him, like, like zooming in as she's doing yoga and exercise. <laughs> okay, this is this is another thing about Broomfield. It's like he tries to be totally transparent. He thinks he's showing you, you know, total reality. Obviously, his persona is a complete put on. He does this Columbo thing where where he shows up at people's offices and tries to look totally ineffectual and and silly because this is a way that he can get people to let their guards down around him. But you see him in Driving Me Crazy flirting with this woman, and it's like, oh yeah, this is the guy, like Nick Broomfield dated a 
procession of beautiful actresses in real life. Like he's a slickster. Like his whole persona on screen as his filmography goes on gets so grating of him being like, why did you do this? Like a five-year-old child asking these people over and over again. There's no real kind of interview style beyond blunt force, which gets kind of annoying after a while. It, It does get annoying, but I mean, you've also got to hand it to him because he does get these people to say incredible things at times. He does, but they're often people that are just waiting for the opportunity for a camera to be put in front of them so they can act that way. It's like he's getting those personalities to act out, not necessarily getting a regular person to crack. So I think the quintessential Nick Broomfield movie is probably... Eileen Wernos, The Selling of a Serial Killer from 1992. This is the one that combines the most of his pet preoccupations. It's about the serial killer Eileen Wernos, although to call her that may or may not be an oversimplification because it seems that most or all of the people that she killed... It was in self-defense. But the movie's not really about her, even though it sets it up that way. I mean, it's right there in the title, The Selling of a Serial Killer. It's about the two people who adopted her while in prison just because they wanted to, you know, give her familial relations as opposed to exploiting her in some ways. Will the movie perhaps reveal that they are just profiteers? That's right. There's Arlene, who's a born-again Christian woman who adopted Eileen Wernos as her daughter, even though she doesn't seem that much older than Eileen Wernos. And there's Steve Glazer, Dr. Legal, who takes on her case for her appeal. He comes up with the brilliant and innovative legal strategy that she should actually plead guilty and ask for the death penalty because this will make uh, the judge look more sympathetically on her. But at the same time... If she pleads not guilty, it's not going to be good for the movie, Will. (laughs) (laughs) So one of my issues with Nick Broomfield, or one of my suspicions, is he always seems to have this very smug certainty that he's better than all of the bottom feeders who he's surrounded by. Wait, that's a suspicion you have? I think the films make that fairly clear. I mean, in this movie, it climaxes with him getting into kind of a yelling match with the Arlene woman saying, I think you're a very deceptive person. Even though that I'm making a documentary about this subject that I will then sell (laughs) to TV channels and will play in film festivals. Well, yeah, so much of this this movie, which I do very much like this movie, but so much of the movie is about there was a media feeding frenzy around Eileen. Police were were in cahoots with movie studios selling the rights to the highest bidder. But it's like Nick is also in cahoots with Steve Glazer. He's paying Steve Glazer on camera, right? Nick, you're making that movie, though. <laughs> it's like he's totally in a transactional relationship with these people. And I mean, maybe it's different because he's filming himself being in a transactional relationship. That transactional relationship is the subject of the film. So maybe it's different. I mean, it's it's a fascinating movie. It raises a lot of interesting ethical questions. Uh, Steve Glazer in particular is an incredible character, just an absolutely ridiculous person who suggests no understanding of the gravity of the situation that that he's in. But I think easily the best person in the movie is Eileen Wuornos, who appears at the end. I mean, this kind of stuff, like true crime, is not my bag. I don't know why it's not. It never has been. It feels like it's a fascination that people get when they're younger, especially if they're like in a city or they're scared somewhere. The idea that like, oh, by learning about this and by following these paths, I can get control 
roll over it. I'm not a huge true crime person either, and I think I'm I've always been more interested in Broomfield for the questions he raises as a documentary filmmaker and as a journalist. So, for instance, when I was at journalism school, we were always told that you you never pay subjects for an interview. That was a big ethical no-no because that'll somehow compromise you. Broomfield, by contrast, is always showing himself paying these interview subjects and always implying that by paying them, like, they're the ethically shoddy ones. Yeah, he complains about it where he's like, wait, I thought that there was a law on the books that didn't allow me to pay you. Or, you know, in something like Tales of the Grim Sleeper, you know, you watch it and he's going around talking to all of these homeless people and all of these sex workers. And you start to think, well, wait a minute. Like, maybe I do hope that he paid these people for these interviews. I think it is ethical to pay people for interviews in situations like that. You know, Will, you say that what interested you about our old pal Nick was the way that he kind of explored the whole theme of being a journalist. But I know what you really like. You like the juice. Like in Heidi Fleiss, Hollywood Madame, when you get the inner workings of the dark underbelly of Hollywood. Well, I love this movie. I have... Somewhat limited respect for it, but I do love it. <laughs> Why do you love it? Uh, I mean, it's just a fun romp. It's uh, Broomfield descends upon L.A. and Heidi Fleiss, the famous Madam to the Stars, she's on trial. And Broomfield just kind of wanders around her milieu trying to find out. Well, I don't know what he's trying to find out, but it, what he does find out is that uh, there's this guy called Ivan Naj, who is her ex-boyfriend, and it seems maybe the one pulling the strings behind her empire. He may have been the one who was really the entrepreneur of this sex work empire, and he set her up as the fall girl. See, when you said that you love this documentary, what I got really excited for was like a Hollywood expose. Let's get Charlie Sheen in there and all the other people that visited Heidi Fleiss. And that's not really what this is. It's mostly about Yvonne Naj and how terrible a person he is. Folks may know Yvonne Naj because he's the director of a movie called Skinner. Which this movie presents as like grainy, like snuff movie footage, which Ted Raimi stars in. And you can now get it in an immaculate widescreen version from Severn Films with an interview featuring Yvonne Naj. Yes, and in that interview on the Blu-ray, Yvonne Naj uh, takes great exception to how he was treated by Nick Broomfield. Oh, does he? <laughs> uh, but, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, Yvonne Naj is introduced with going, what, you think I sold Heidi for $500? Look at the paintings on the walls. Do I look like someone who needs $500? And then, of course, 10 minutes later, he's like, oh, please pay me so I can do the interview with you. He sells Nick Broomfield a home video of Heidi Fleiss for a couple hundred dollars and he's like this will show you uh, a different side of Heidi it will show you a different side of our relationship and the side it shows is like she's naked at his house and she's like why is there green stuff coming out of your dick I mean that stuff is like so sleazy and like just uncomfortable and Broomfield in this one especially keeps like inserting like photos and like weird sound effects over the stuff to make it as sensational as possible I think Broomfield does some actually like pretty indefensible stuff in this movie there's that early scene where he's driving around a red light district and he's talking to the streetwalkers being like um excuse me do you know Heidi Fleiss it just made me very uncomfortable to watch that. And also, like, the fact that he plays that home video that Yvonne Naj took, which is mostly just Heidi Fleiss nude. Like, I don't know. And he shows, he plays a lot of, like, 
private phone conversations. And he throws that naked photo of, of Yvonne Nash up on screen. <laughs> a lot of the stuff I'm saying, it's like, okay, am I glad I saw that home video where it's. Yeah, you love it. That's what you love. I love it. I love it. And you don't actually love the content of the home video. You just love the idea that someone would put it in a movie and that you're watching it right now. Well, and I also love the fact that this was the home video that Yvonne Nash sold Nick Broomfield where it has Heidi in it saying, why is there green stuff coming out of your dick? This is where like Nick Broomfield is probably, as you said, at his exploitative worst in the movies that I saw. But you watch a Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain one this week, right? Well, yeah, and I didn't think it was very good. That was one where, I mean, supposedly he set out to document the Portland music scene. Yeah, right. Show, show the world that Nick came from. But unfortunately, Courtney Love caught wind of what was happening and she became an obstacle to the filmmaking. And so the movie just just somehow became about conspiracy theories about did she kill Kurt? Did she not? The thing about Nick Broomfield is that for a guy who presents himself as looking for the story, he already has his thesis And he's just trying to find a way to get to that thesis. He's not really documenting or discovering anything. I do think Kurt and Courtney gets very indefensible when he spends 30 minutes on these conspiracy theories about, oh, did Courtney kill Kurt? Um, And then he's like, "Uh, I no longer believed in the conspiracy theories. Well, (laughs) sorry, bud. Like... You don't you don't get to do that. That's very that's very wrong. And then it just in the second half becomes this movie about how Courtney Love is such an awful person and how she's threatening journalists and this and that and this and that. And it it gets very like by the by the end of it it's like you're pretending you wanted to make a movie about Kurt Cobain, but what you really wanted to do was make a hatchet piece about Courtney Love. And I wish you were just a little more honest about that. It's fascinating that after these films where it looks like Broomfield is just digging his own grave and his style has reached its end point with Sarah Palin, you betcha, in 2011. And then two years later, he puts out Tales of the Grim Sleeper, which is probably his best film. Yeah, I thought it was really great, actually. So this is a movie that takes place in South Central LA during the aftermath of the arrest of the Grim Sleeper killer, a guy called Lonnie Franklin. Uh, A lot of people will know about this case. He targeted prostitutes in the area, killed at least 10 people, but probably many more between 1985 and 2010. So when I heard the premise of this movie, I was like, ugh, another true crime film. But like, it's not really about that. And Broomfield ends up just documenting the world that this person came from and the people that he affected as opposed to the actual case. Yeah, I mean... I think it's a movie that harnesses all of his good qualities and keeps his less appealing qualities in check. (laughs) I thought that cracker was a term of endearment. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of why it's good is because early on, he encounters this woman named Pam, who's a recovering addict and a former sex worker. And she knows everybody in the neighborhood and she's able to take him around almost like as his ambassador. Well, it seems like she's on her own mission And he kind of connects to it. And through that, the documentary actually gets its spine. So, yeah, like we encounter lots of people who knew the Grim Sleeper Killer, lots of people who were in proximity to him. And it becomes such an overwhelmingly tragic film. It's like tragedy compounded by tragedy. 
There are the crimes, of course, which are so awful and sadistic. There's the impacts of the crimes on the community and the guy's family. But most importantly, there's like the structural racism that leads to something like this not only happening, but being allowed to continue to happen for decades. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a community that's been hollowed out by the loss of its industries. There's a crack epidemic. But then most horrifyingly of all, there's the LAPD, which... The movie suggests that the LAPD was either completely indifferent to the crimes because they were targeting black female sex workers and drug addicts, uh, but also that maybe people in the LAPD actually regarded the Grim Sleeper Killer as a net positive. It's like, he's cleaning up the streets, you know? There's the terminology that gets bring up at the end, NHI, no humans involved, which is a code that the police would use. It's been erased by the time documentaries come out, but it means that like prostitutes were involved, people of lower class that even if they do die, we shouldn't tell the public at large. Like the fact that no one in the community knew there was a serial killer that had been around for decades. And another motif of the film is how many of the Grim Sleeper's friends were just shocked and disappointed believing of the allegations there are these three guys three friends of his who become recurring characters throughout and the first time broomfield meets them they're like no couldn't like lonnie he's a great guy couldn't have been him and then they all come back to nick they're like oh yeah he had that box of naked women that he kept in his garage oh yeah yeah he had a gun oh yeah i was with him in the neighborhood and he started like beating up a sex worker and oh yeah we were all together in like a private porn club where we would take pictures of prostitutes and show them to each other and it's like, oh, my God. I mean, it's it's an interesting picture of, like, when something like this happens in a community, like, sort of the lengths that people go to to compartmentalize or or to, to normalize, like, strange behavior so that they themselves don't feel complicit. So this documentary, if anybody's interested in Nick Broomfield, I would almost say, like, watch Chicken Ranch and this one if you want to do two. And then you can get in the scuzzy stuff with the Heidi Fleiss Hollywood Madame documentary and go from there. But, like, does he have anywhere to go after this? Like, after Tales of the Grim Sleeper, which is a terrible title, I have to say. <laughs> like, And, I mean, Nick Broomfield makes some really tasteless decisions, like having, like, a Jason from Friday the 13th, like heavy breathing and like horror music over some scenes. You know, I guess, but I also think that a documentary like this, you know, when it's a white affluent Brit descending into a poor black community, there are just so many ethical landmines that are there. And I actually have to give Broomfield credit. I think he avoids most of them. I, th I think he's pretty tasteful. I think he does too. Mostly by featuring himself as the disbelieving, ununderstanding rube in the situations. And also by handing over so much control to Pam. But after that film... He followed it up with Whitney, Can I Be Me from 2017, which, oh, he's back to his old ways. Well, actually, the Whitney Houston documentary, which I have seen, it's just a rather standard talking head documentary that also has a lot of behind the scenes footage of her. It feels a lot like Amy. You remember the Amy Winehouse movie? Didn't see it. Uh, so it's not it's not Broomfield like walking around with the camera and the boom mic. It's a much more standard kind of well-behaved documentary. And I know he just did one about uh, Leonard Cohen. You know, it's possible that he feels he's at least for the time being reached the limit of a certain kind of documentary. 
you know, maybe he doesn't want to do the boom mic wandering around shtick anymore. Maybe he wants to do something else. Yeah, he wants to do like bland talking heads that can hopefully be nominated for Oscars. I mean, once he received those checks from the uh, Volkswagen commercials he sent me. <laughs> so like what was going on in those that like Nick Broomfield was enough of a pop culture figure that he could star in Volkswagen commercials? I assume that Nick Broomfield is probably like pretty famous in Britain. Like these movies showed on Channel 4. They showed on the BBC. People people watch these movies he's probably famous then. i'm looking forward to the broomfield and me podcast that'll start where they go chronologically through the filmography of nick broomfield i would love to do that i had a great time <laughs> this week watching nick broomfield movies i just loved being reunited with all my favorite characters yvonne naj madam alex suge knight you know <laughs> el duce i love i love these characters so as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com it's been a bit of a dry spell lately when it comes to letters. Uh, let, let me see if I can prompt something. Uh, what are you watching under quarantine? Not just the list of movies that you're watching. Have you picked any themes? How are you keeping yourself sane when it comes to consuming any kind of entertainment? I mean, it sounds like most people are just watching stuff that they love. They don't want to, like, discover new stuff because it's just so emotionally overwhelming with what everything that's going on, which is completely understandable. Mm-hmm. So on our Patreon this week, we watched... I mean, the fans demanded it. We finally got to it. The Princess Diaries. Yes, the first Gary Marshall film to be discussed on the Important Cinema Club. And hopefully not the last. (laughs) We should do every single one of the master Gary Marshall's movies. Yeah, that'll be episode 300, Gary Marshall Palooza. We're going to (laughs) watch New Year's Eve, um, I don't know, President's Day. (laughs) Arbor Day. (laughs) Arbor Day, yeah. Canada Day. And so to listen to that great episode, you can pay $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and i should announce here that uh, on our patreon we'll be doing our second online screening and like we did last time it's a secret one but it's definitely something that's up uh, me and will's alley i've spoken to will what the movie is we've talked about it on this podcast at length and uh what what day is it what time it's going to be this friday uh which is april 24th at 8 p.m. So I'll have a link that you'll be able to watch the movie and hang out with other people in a chat room. And I'll post that link around that time on the Discord channel. So you just got to become a Patreon subscriber. You'll get access to the Discord. Check out all the fun stuff that's happening there. And folks, you're going to like this movie. There's no way if you listen to this podcast that they're not going to like this movie. (laughs) Like (laughs) these are, I guess, audience friendly films that even work when you're sitting alone because your mouth will be agape. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we are venturing back to Hong Kong. I don't think we've done a Hong Kong filmmaker in a while. We're going to be talking about Herman Yao, whose career runs the gamut. He's done exploitation films. He's done action films. He's done, uh, I mean, he's done all, he's done frothy comedies, uh, like just, just a vast, vast filmography. He is probably best known on these shores for a couple of really grimy and gruesome horror movies ebola syndrome and the untold story but what i'm fascinated about herman yao is him as that kind of complete filmmaker he writes some films he directs some films he produces his films he's a cinematographer on other people's pictures and at the same time he's not a hack like someone i don't know wong jing yeah wong jing he'll make a movie which is a wong jing film probably produced by wong jing and then he'll turn around and make a picture about prostitutes unionizing 
recognizing. Like he's all across the board. And from the little information I could find about his background, it's just fascinating stuff. I believe he studied to be a journalist. He started his own film newsletter and that he's like a, he was fairly active as an activist in his young days. I have a feeling that's probably not the case since the handover, but we're going to dive into his filmography and we're going to talk about his films and what kind of person makes these kind of films. So that'll be Herman Yao next week. And basically what I'm interested in finding out is like, is there anything there? Are you looking for like an authorial signature? I'm looking for evidence that he's a filmmaker worth doing. Can I put it that way? Because like, I've always really wanted to explore Herman Yao. I've liked certain of his movies that I've seen. It looks like there's a lot of dross in that filmography, but there are a couple of them that sound really intriguing. And I guess I want to know, like, like what what is our angle going to be on Herman Yao? Like, is he is he an interesting filmmaker? I think he is an interesting filmmaker, even if he's not an auteur, just because of the projects that he takes and that they're actually challenges. But you know what? Maybe I'll be proven wrong. We'll have you have to tune in next <laughs> week to find out. And we're gonna have to uh, dust off that amazing issue of Cineast, which has an interview with him about having to work under mainland Chinese control. And unless I'm mistaken, he's kind of ambivalent. Uh, in this interview that like he admits that there's difficulties as opposed to Johnny Toe who hates mainland censors and Gordon Chan who is pro mainland censors the whole way so until then my name is Justin Clue I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening We interrupt your regular scheduled programming to thank some new Patreon subscribers like Elliot Toome, Scorch Dugan, JCF, Umesh Pathy, Robert McDonald, and Liz Ryerson. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. I hope that we see you on the Discord, and I hope that you join us this Friday for our movie night. Again, if you'd like to subscribe, it's at patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. And now, back to the show. Being trapped indoors day and night sometimes gives us opportunity to watch things that we wouldn't normally watch. Justin, I noticed that you that you watched the eight-hour documentary Shoah by Claude Landsman. Eight hours? More like ten hours, Will. Ah, <laughs> uh, excuse me. I saw Shoah maybe um, seven or eight years ago, I think. I saw it back when I was working in uh, Elmira, Ontario, and I just had a lot of time on my hands to do things like watch Shoah. Oh, sorry. I wasn't listening to you, Will. I was reading my copy of Infinite Jest and Gravity's Rainbow, which I have both open and I'm checking out. <laughs> Ulysses, I'll save for another time. So the way that I got to show is I was going through one of those like thousand and one movies to see before you die and the movies on there are all ones that everybody knows but a lot of people haven't watched unless they were forced to experience it through film class so I went uh Shoa the holocaust I guess I'll watch it because <laughs> this is the one that will always be at the top of the list and will always, for most people, remain unwatched. And once I read into it a little bit more, I was like, OK, I can take this. This is not like Alain René's Night and Fog because it doesn't use any archival footage. And that's the gimmick. It's Lonsman, He's going around to the concentration camp. Well, he's, he goes around everywhere, but in particular, he goes to the concentration camps and you are really supposed to kind of project your knowledge of the atrocities onto these seemingly innocuous spaces. And what I was surprised by while watching it is that to my uh, layman eyes, it seemed fairly unstructured. Like he would go to one person and they would tell a story that happened during the Holocaust. And then he'd go to somebody else and it would, he, they would also tell a story that is 
disconnected from the story in time and experiences than what you had just heard. So it's not even chronologically telling the story of the Holocaust. It's just these particular people and their experiences. Well, because he doesn't use any archival footage and because he organizes the material in such idiosyncratic fashion, it seems almost as if the Holocaust is this like, it's like this force. It's this kind of pervade all pervading tumor on society and you can see it like its roots are everywhere like you look at the grass at auschwitz and the grass seems complicit in what has happened there's a scene in the movie where he goes to a bar and he's he's going up to the bartender and he's like um excuse me um you made that beer right yes well um how, how many beers have you poured today and like what you realize when he's doing that is oh this is a guy who worked at the camps and like what he's doing is saying, okay, you've got these these beers on an assembly line, basically, sort of like how you had the victims of the Holocaust on an assembly line. And then you look at the beer and it's like, the beer is complicit now, you know? I mean, the thing about the Holocaust is it's drilled into us as kids through you, through popular culture, through things like Schindler's List, that it almost becomes kind of like, oh, it's something that I am aware of and I know that it happened. But it is impossible for anyone to grasp in any meaningful way when it hasn't affected somebody that they know, whether it be a grandparent or even an acquaintance. And when you see, and when you hear the numbers of people that were brutally murdered, it is just unimaginable again. And like how this happens. So much of Showa is about how the Holocaust reverberates and, and continues to reverberate how these communities were decimated, how people with living memory of the atrocities, people who perpetrated the atrocities are, are still, you know, just out there. People either carry these memories with them or, or they carry the knowledge that they perpetrated these things with them while they're pouring drinks at a bar, you know? The idea of like the perpetrators just going on into life after it ended is the thing that is like important impossible to grasp as a human being that you did these horrible things and then it was over and then you just went back to life and so you see the railway that once transported the jews you see the grass on which the jews once walked you see the ovens in which the jews were once fed and you see no evidence of that anymore because it's it's this absence um he doesn't show you any footage because that would remove the meaning of of that that extraordinary absence um and yet and yet it's there like the reverberation is there the shadow is there and the film is constantly forcing the viewer to sit in silence and absorb what's going on the people that were survivors tell their story and then you hear it translated into french and the camera just holds on those survivors faces as they're waiting for the horrible things that they just said transferred to the other people that do not speak their language. And you can just see them waiting for the questions to come, having to deal with these issues. There's one scene where a barber is just cutting hair, talking about how he cut the hair of the men and women before they went to the gas chamber and how he had to make it feel like it was just something regular that he did or like, the woman who learned what was happening and tried to go warn everybody, but nobody believed her because they thought like, oh, that couldn't happen. That's crazy. Nobody would ever do that. Or the people who live in the town by the death camps, who they see the trains coming up to the camps and they all know what's happening. They're all living in the town next to them. And it's not they're, first, they're powerless to do anything. But then secondly, they kind of start to like that they have this knowledge. And they kind of like that, you know, they see all these rich Jewish people 
one formerly rich Jewish people coming up on a train. And there's like one guy who even like mimes like cutting a throat, you know, where he's like, oh, man, you know, you would see people coming on these trains and something that I had never heard was the way that the Nazis actually went about the instructions of extermination, which they never actually said those words. There is no documentation that actually catalogs what they should do and how they should go about it. It's all inferred and they never use the words. And by doing that, they dehumanize all the stuff that's happening. And it doesn't for them, I guess, feel like such atrocities because, oh, we're not using murder or exterminate. It's just, as we discussed, the process that needs to be done, you know, final solution, just awful stuff. And like a documentary like this, because of the way that it presents it, I think it is removed from all the other stuff most people have seen when it deals with the Holocaust, which are more, I guess, conventional documentaries or, you know, uh, older films or like Life is Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, a movie like Life is Beautiful, where basically there's the implication that the war ends and it's over. But, you know, uh, speaking of Life is Beautiful, I was recently thinking about the day the clown cried. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, the thing about this movie is it's famously going to be released in, I believe, 2024. I'm presumably going to be screened in 2024. One of the reasons why it could never be released was that Jerry didn't actually have the rights to the mm, script. That's right. So when you hear that it'll be screening, will you go through hell or high water to get to that screening, Will? Yes, I will take a plane to the Library of Congress to watch it if I have to. Now, what I was thinking is that like, I always see people bring this movie up and my response to that is always like, you watch every Jerry Lewis movie, then you get to watch The Day the Cloud Cries. You know, Justin, I totally agree with you. And I, because I don't want like dilettantes, you know, ironic people who, who are not invested in the art of Jerry Lewis to go and do their little how did this get made mystery science theater shtick. Because they it. will, you know, they will do that. And I believe in what you say so much that I'm even excluding myself because, of course, I haven't seen them all. (laughs) I haven't seen them all. I haven't seen uh, One More Time. There are a couple of Martin and Lewis ones I've missed. So I'm going to have to study up. I'm going to have to see the ones I've missed. I hate gatekeepers. But every time I hear somebody say, oh, I'd love to see The Day the Clown Cried, I always want to be like, have you seen the other films on either side of those? Because those are really bad as well. (laughs) Yeah, you better watch Hardly Working. (laughs) 